2: Hi, I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening to the Town Hall Review podcast, where we bring you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Our podcast is brought to you through partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy and ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. Here's a piece I hope you enjoy from my cigar smoking friend Dennis Prager. She didn't hear me say this, but I said one of the great thinkers living today. That is how highly I regard this woman, Carolyn Glick, and she is a columnist for. And the Israeli newspaper Israel Hayom, Israel Today, and you can read her uh, all over the internet and she has her own website. Caroline Glick, welcome to the Dennis Prager Show.
1: Oh, it's so great to be on your program, Dennis. Thank you for having
2: me. Well, it's a pleasure. Why don't you uh, share with my audience your views on the President of the United States, Iran, and Israel?
1: Well, um, Donald Trump, uh, President Trump did something um, at the beginning of the month uh, that really changed the game for American Middle East policy and really buried uh, 40, 41 years of American foreign policy in the Middle East. That was based on uh, two sort of phantasmagorical concepts of what an American policy (coughs) should look like. Uh, in regards to Iran on the one side and Israel on the other side. I think that we're all really better off uh, today and safer today because he's, he did what he did at the beginning of the month. And, of course, I'm talking about uh, the killings of the uh, of Qasem Soleimani, who is known as the uh, commander of the al Force of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps. And what that actually translates into is he was in charge of Iran's global and regional terror nexus, its non-conventional programs, including its nuclear program, its missile programs, all of its regional aggression in places like Iraq and Syria and Yemen, uh, Lebanon, Gaza, Israel, um, and also its global aggression in places as far-flung as Latin America and Europe, um, Mexico. So uh, he was the single most dangerous terrorist in the world. Responsible not only for the death of 600 or so American servicemen and women in Iraq who were killed by uh, improvised uh, explosive devices, uh, roadside bombs that were crafted in Iran by his forces, but also he was responsible for the bloodshed in Syria, the genocide of Syrian Sunnis uh, by uh, the Assad regime and uh, and Hezbollah and uh, Iranian forces. He's been responsible for most of the bloodshed in in Iraq since the U.S.-led invasion. Um, He was responsible for uh, the uh, expulsion, effectively, the ethnic cleansing of Syrian Sunnis that led to the refugee crisis in Europe. Um, So basically, behind almost every global conflict and problem that we've been suffering from for the past 20-odd years, Qasem Suleimani's fingerprints could be found, and now he's dead. And that really is one of the most significant developments that we've seen in the region and indeed in the world in the global war against terrorism since
2: 9-11. That is a big deal. Your article notes, and, mm-hmm. and this goes back to your, the beginning of your statement, he has undone 41 years of, of American mm-hmm. policy. So I read your article, your latest, I read you regularly, and your latest piece is of tremendous interest to Americans. This president has undone the Iranian policies of 41 years. That is since the Iranian revolution of 1979. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. That's correct. It's been a policy. that In fact, what I wrote about in my article, uh, which I called Trump and the Mythmakers, I explained that Trump has really undone 40 years or 41 years of American foreign policy related to Iran and Israel. And these were policies that uh, were uh, were initiated by uh, Jimmy Carter um, in the late 1970s, and 1978 and 1979. And then even though uh, his uh, his uh, successors, particularly Reagan and the Bushes, uh, were highly critical of his policies. Um, at least from a rhetorical, uh, a rhetorical perspective. Substantively, they maintained them throughout their presidencies. As of course did uh, uh, Bill Clinton and and uh, Obama.
2: Right, the, and so how would you characterize all of those presidents, Republican and Democratic? Attitudes and policies vis
1: a vis vis a vis Iran. Um, they were based on this fantasy. You see, in, in November of 1979, as you know, uh, the Iranian uh, revolutionary regime committed an act of war against the United States when it uh, uh, when it took over the U.S. embassy and uh, took the uh, Americans uh, on the premises hostage and, and held them hostage for 444 days. That's 52 Americans. And well, that was an act of war, and generally speaking, uh, it would have, if, if the United States had acknowledged that it was, uh, in fact, an act of war, which, of course, it was by any definition, uh, they would have had to respond with force of some kind uh, to make uh, Iran uh, stand down and, and perhaps overthrow the uh, new revolutionary regime that had just declared war on the United States. Uh, but Jimmy Carter didn't want to do that for a host of reasons, um, one of them. Uh, was that he didn't—I I, I think he you know, he had uh, some sort of an ideological affinity with the revolutionaries in the sense that he shared with his advisors a sense of guilt uh, over American policies and thought that perhaps America had, in fact, been an imperialist power and, therefore, it was getting its comeuppance. And But whatever the case, he chose not to recognize what was happening. And so when the Iranians said, oh, no, no, It's not Ayatollah Khomeini, the supreme leader of Iran, that's behind this, but it's just a group of uh, students, students they called them, who were acting independently of of the Ayatollah and his entire apparatus of power, and they were really just helpless to take action to free the American hostages from these uh, students. Um, And therefore, they were kept in central Tehran as hostages of the students, who are, of course, independent actors. Uh, for for nearly two years, for, for a year and a half. And that was on its face insane. Of course, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini was in charge of them. And of course, they weren't students. They were soldiers of the Ayatollah. But uh, if America recognized this, then again, they were going to have to do something. So from the very outset, the American policy was to pretend along with the Iranians that the Iranian regime was not responsible for its aggression and uh, acts of war against the United States that were carried out uh, by uh, by proxies or by uh, thinly disguised soldiers. Well, for instance, in 1983, Iran's Lebanese proxy, Hezbollah, which was uh, uh, a creation of the regime, um, they bombed the American embassy in Beirut in, in April of eighty three And then in November of 83, they bombed the Marine barracks in Beirut, and they killed 241 American Marines. And, again, the Reagan administration, which, you know, is considered to have been much stronger on Iran than Carter, actually wasn't. Um, Rather than recognizing that this, again, was an act of war against the United States with the embassy bombing and the Marine barracks bombing, um, the Americans pretended it away, uh, pretended that it was carried out by independent actors inside of Lebanon that had no relationship to any state supporters, and removed the Marines uh, from Beirut, never took action against Iran for that those two acts of war against Americans in in Beirut or subsequent uh, kidnappings and tortures and killings of American embassy uh, personnel, including the CIA station chief in Beirut. So the Americans and Reagan, Then Bush, both Bushes, Clinton, Obama—all of them pretended to believe the denials of the Iranian regime, while they knew full well that all of these terrorist attacks against America, against its allies, against other countries, were being carried out, directed, sponsored, paid for, and commanded by the Iranian regime. Because they just didn't want to deal with it. They never wanted to acknowledge what was happening and so for 41 years America has based its policy on the fantasy that the Iranian regime wasn't responsible for its own actions
2: wow that's all i could say and now a president has said the emperor is naked this is exactly. the em- this is the emperor and we will confront him
1: and And what Trump did i mean he 's been unwinding not just the obama administration 's uh, policies, which were unapologetically delusional. I mean they were saying we can let these people who 've been fighting us for forty one years get bombs, get nuclear bombs, right we can give them a pathway and an open path to a nuclear to a nuclear arsenal and ballistic missile capable of carrying nuclear warheads within a, within a decade It'll all be fine because this regime is responsible when all evidence was to the contrary. They didn't care I mean the Obama administration if, if the Reagan administration or the Bush administrations were culpable for this
2: I want to move over and I know you had more to say, uh, but uh, we only have two minutes uh, okay. Is it fair to say? that there is a massive rift in world Jewry. American Jews by and large loathe president uh, uh, uh president Trump and uh, uh Israeli Jews by and large love him. Is that fair to say?
1: It is, and actually I'm writing a book right now about the American Jewish community's relationship to Trump, which will hopefully be out in the late in the late summer, but uh um, yeah, so there's a very big uh, disparity between the two communities, and it has to do with um, many things, but one of them is nationalism and how Jews relate to the concept of a nation state, because I mean what you're talking about most American Jews oppose Donald Trump, but most American Jews' primary identity isn't that they're Jewish, it's that they're liberals or progressives or Democrats. And unfortunately, over the past many years, uh, 50 years, in fact, the left in the United States has become progressively uh, less interested in in America, in the nation state, in the concept of national self-determination, and has become more uh, enamored of this concept of uh, transnationalism, post-nationalism, the U.N. should decide things instead of America about how America fights wars and and who can win a war and who's an aggressor. So a lot of these concepts that have internationalized sovereignty and taken it away from nations have become sort of the the benchmarks of leftism and of progressivism. And if you want to be part of that group, then you have to embrace that. And of course, Israel uh, rejects all of that because Israel is the nation state of the Jewish people. And, uh, you know, we didn't reform our national commonwealth after 2,000 years of persecution uh, in order to be told what to do by the likes of the U.N. or the E.U. or anything Well,
2: else I can't wait has. till the book is out. I really, uh, I mean, it's so important what you just said. Caroline Glick, keep writing, and thank you so much.
1: Thank you. And thank you so much for everything you do, Dennis. Have a great day.
2: Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming to you today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy, where they're preparing leaders for the public square. Application deadline for fall classes is June 15. It might be the right step for you or a recent college graduate in your life. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you enjoy your podcast, take a moment, tell a friend to subscribe today.
0: This is Michael Medved at michaelmedved.com for Town Hall. A new Gallup poll shows the Democrats' diversity not only in racial terms, but in ideological outlook. The GOP remains overwhelmingly conservative, with 73% describing themselves that way and only 4% identifying as liberals. Meanwhile, a full 14 percent of Democrats called themselves conservatives, and another 36 percent said they're moderates. While Democratic leaders drift to the left of their base, the GOP should target conservatives and moderates in Democratic ranks. If you get a new voter to show up to vote Republican, that's good. But it gives you just one extra ballot. If you convert a Democrat to your cause, you not only bag a new vote for your side— but simultaneously take a ballot from the other side. That's the right formula for decisive Republican victory. I'm Michael Medved.
2: Publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.